Hello, I'm Rob Smith and welcome to this episode of All Bases Covered. My latest conversation is with Jatin Patel, one of the UK's hottest fashion designers. He's an amazing guy based in Rochester in Medway in Kent and his bespoke clothing label Kalika's Armour is worn by some of the UK's wealthiest people and top models. But he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, far from it, and success was by no means handed to him on a plate. He's British Indian, and his parents came to the UK from Gujarat in the 1960s. And our conversation took place the day after that Rishi Sunak had become the UK's first non-white political leader. A really significant moment, whatever your politics. And the spark for a really thought-provoking discussion about race and racism and belonging and what it means to be British. We also talked about fashion, obviously, and sustainability and ethics in the industry. And we talked about his personal journey from being a working class lad from the Midlands to his current success, overcoming prejudice and confidence issues along the way. Our conversation took place in his extraordinary apartment in a Napoleonic fort in Rochester with gun emplacements for windows that overlook the river and the castle and the cathedral, a space that's stuffed with all manner of objects collected over the years, peacocks and buddhas and crowns and chandeliers, even even a full-size leopard. It's somewhat exotic and creative and very much what you might expect of somebody who's embedded in high fashion, but maybe unexpected for the Medway towns. He's actually a fierce advocate of Medway and its creative potential and very vocal about the need to protect and promote its further and higher education opportunities because he studied at CIAD, which famously also counts Sandra Rhodes as an alumnus. He's a dazzling character, even if he habitually dresses all in black. And Jatin's also about to launch a new project to bring his designs to the wider public. I find him to be really stimulating and energizing company. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation too. So, Jatin, uh, who are you? Where do you come who from? Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> a very good question. Quite often yeah. I've asked myself that as well. You know, who am I? Yeah. And I think, am I a product of my experiences? Or am I a product of my evolving experiences, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. But in terms of the reality of where I am, um, I am 44 years old. Mm-hmm. I was born in the East Midlands in a little place called Loughborough. Oh, right, yes. That's where, um, yeah, my family originally from the Gujarat in India. Uh-huh. Uh, so my grandfather came here in the late 60s, settled in Leamington Spa. Yes. Um, and at that time with the same sort of... Uh, immigration idea and empire and the first second generations of Indians that came over mm-hmm. you know were doing the real menial jobs the real donkey jobs what, what kind of stuff was he doing working in the factories sort of 12 hour shifts in some, some sort of I guess it was metal injection or whatever it was. I can't even remember exactly mm-hmm. what it was but I remember it was more with manual laboring very stuff. manual labor mm-hmm. um, so he'd come by himself at the time and obviously he'd made some friends and people who were sharing a house with or sharing a room and they used to have shift work, mm-hmm. so that shift work in the beds as well, that when they worked in the day, somebody else slept in their beds in the night, they'd come at night and they'd rotate, share the beds, no heating, no nothing. I don't know why I remember that today, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's the sort of level of hardship that they've come from. And so you went to State Comprehensive yeah. in... In Loughborough. In Loughborough. Loughborough. Um, and now... Let's let's just sort of frame where you where you've come from, where you are now. Kalika's armor yeah. is your sort of primary public facing 
um, business. Yes. And that is really very high-end, bespoke, couturier, high fashion for people who can really afford it. <laughs> Essentially, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, that's quite a journey, isn't it? It is a real journey. And it's been a real roller coaster of a journey. Mm. And, and I think I'm ready for it to be spoken about or, or, or um, revealed. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but I think for so long I've kind of had this journey. And, and maybe it's a subconscious trait that we've, or I've sort of developed in a sense that you kind of have to keep so much, not hidden, but you don't reveal it all mm -hmm. in a sense because maybe those were the experiences that I had that if you reveal too much, you didn't get the positive experiences that you think that you should have had. Mm -hmm. And then it was almost you didn't want to be judged. And that sounds really complex, but I guess it's that complexity of my thinking as well, because I, I, I going back to who am I, I almost feel, and I've felt for a long time, that I'm almost an in-between. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It, it, it's, a, it's a, so you, you, you've got these certain personas that you don't even realise you're living. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of think, well, hold up a second. This is me. This is who I am. And this is what I do. I think it takes quite a long time to become confident enough in yourself to genuinely be yourself publicly. And um, and and you have to get probably past your, into your 40s <laughs> to reach that point where you are strong enough and mature enough to go, I don't have to worry about all that rubbish anymore yeah. that you can actually be yourself. I don't know whether you saw... Um, Mo Farah talking about his experiences yes. and that that he had to hide his background because he was essentially a trafficked child mm. and an illegal migrant into the UK. Now, that's not your experience. No. You're a working class lad from the Midlands, but that's a son it. of immigrant parents. So yes. you've had to deal with some of those issues and you've had to bury some of those issues. Yeah. So where are you at now? How do you, how do you feel? That's a very good question. Because I think if we frame it in the context of where we are today, the day after we've just had our first British Indian Prime Minister, I'm in very mixed feelings. I'm kind of, I was so happy and quite ecstatic at the, at the, the thought of that happening and the reality of it happening and, and the celebrating the prospect of that is a possibility, you know, almost like the American dream, mm -hmm. you, you mm -hmm. know, the British dream. But, but it's been so interesting to see the backlash from across all the communities some valid, in my opinion, some not, and mm -hmm. everybody's entitled to their opinion. But it's just, yeah, and, and, and I think maybe a lot of stuff that I buried is emerging as well, you know, and talking with my family and in our WhatsApp group um, and about the mixed views that they still hold. And it's a very interesting thing. And, and I think it really started to unpack those experiences once um, the Queen passed away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the concept of monarchy came up again and then empire, as it always does. And um, and where do we fit? Mm -hmm. And so... Do you feel that you don't fit then? It's a half and half. Mm. I feel that I don't fit, but then I question myself, thinking, what am I trying to fit into? Mm -hmm. Because it's not just me, it's everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're all trying to find out where we are and who we are. But then I equally think I do fit. And then I equally think, why do I need to feel that I need to fit? Mm -hmm. If all my life, my experience and everything, I've become who I am because I just danced on my own beat and just been lucky enough to just get out there and do something and 
make my lucky breaks or have lucky breaks and find myself and do this, mm. that I think, what am I trying to fit into? And it comes back down to this. So when we go over to India, and I see my cousins in there, they're Indian. Mum mm-hmm. and dad are Indian. My grandparents are Indian, technically by nationality, because that's where they were born. Mm-hmm. We were born here. Mm-hmm. So we're British, English. Mm-hmm. But growing up, we were always told, you're not proper English or you're not proper British. Mm. So then... The, the, the whole idea of, you know, I remember my grandparents um, saying to us uh, growing up that, you know, education, 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 and our parents, education, 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 because no matter what, nobody can take your knowledge away from you. Mm-hmm. Because of their experiences, lived experiences, up until then, they'd had land taken away from them or possessions or, you know, uh, a couple of my aunts who were married into the family uh, of, are of African origin. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, we got into all stuff with Idi Amin and all mm-hmm. that. So it's a collective experience to then what do we do for the next generation? So is that, um, there's a kind of a constant paranoia. When you hear, when you hear uh, sort of people who were involved in the Holocaust, for instance, mm. and they've had that, that sort of first generation and the children who grew up in the, in the 50s, parents, who, you know, yeah. Jewish families, who are just terrified of having it all taken away. Yeah. That kind of a feeling. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. But but it, it, that kind of feeling, but also with my granddad, and I think maybe that's where I get it from as well, is that real desire to do better mm-hmm. and to just go out and achieve mm-hmm. and whatever it is, but just think that I can get to that stage, but that generation after me is going to get to that stage and that longer generational thinking, you know, going down to, <laughs> we, look, we laugh about it now and we call it the tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nearly 40 of us now in the extended clan with the nieces, nephews, everybody made that sort of stuff. But all growing up, you're all together in one house. Mm-hmm. When it first started off, because you saved money that way. Mm-hmm. You cooked together, you ate together, you shared things, you did it. And then you helped buy somebody else buy a house and that went on to the next and the next. And, the, and there was just somehow the idea of unity and family together. Mm. So I'm still very, very close to my cousins. Um, we were brought up as brothers and sisters mm-hmm. rather than, you know, first cousin, second, whatever it is. Yeah, you're all in the same space. That's it. Yeah. Same space. And it, to continue it now over the generations that we still spend Christmases together and go to the Lake District and hire out these big... Kind of call them cottages, but you're there for like four or five days. Uh-huh. And, do you know what I mean? It's just that. So you turn up in a bus, <laughs> 150 of you. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but we used to. Go, Have you ever seen Bargy on the Beach? Which is a very old school film, but it's <laughs> that, that sort kind of thing. Yeah. But it was, you yeah. Know? And, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It was, and then our teenage years, we sort of almost had to become self deprecating because, you know, you'd turn up. And it was your typical cliche sometimes with the women dressed how they are. Mm-hmm. But that's what life was. You turn up, you know, you're sort of 13, 14, you're trying to be a little bit cool, a little bit trendy. And you're like, you know, this, that. Yeah. And you're like, all right, here we go. And then, you know, if you take a mic out yourself, then it doesn't matter what anybody else is saying. So have you kind of come full circle now then? That you're... you're I don't think you let anybody take the mickey out of no you. No way, would you? No way. A banter and one thing's ending, but there's a line. And mm-hmm. that's taken me a long time to get to that stage. Because mm-hmm. I think for a long time, I let people walk all over me. Because I almost felt apologetic. You know, and, and again, that goes back to something that um, I can't take credit for this. But I read it the other day on WhatsApp. And it was really relatable because it was such a common story. And this is a real common story with all sort of the British Asian community. You know, that when they first came over here, they weren't educated. Mm-hmm. Or if they were educated, like my dad, when they came here with his masters, it just was counted for shit. Mm-hmm. So they had to start again and start the donkey jobs in the mm-hmm. factory. Mm-hmm. But did they, did it 
complain, moan. What could they, they had do? To just get on they with had it. to get on with it and yeah. do it. You know, so they did it. But um, I'm losing my thread here a little. No, but I, I think it's really, you know, you're, you're clearly in psychologically a very robust place these days. Hmm. That you're very self-confident in who you are, what you do, why you do it. Yes. And being able to publicly say that um, is... I think it's great. Yeah. It took me a long time. It has yeah. taken me a while, but I'm, I am at that stage where I think it's, I always thought I needed a certain validation or at least a recognition or something. But mm. now it's just like, well, no, because as you grow older and you sort of work in these systems or organizations at levels of, or, or let's say institutions of power. Mm-hmm that we're always brought up with mm-hmm. to believe in. And, and, you, and you have this notion that what they're telling you is gospel because what they're doing, everything's above board. Mm-hmm. And you start working with them and you find out that they're as corrupt as anything. So you're like, who are you to tell me what to do? And you, you not, you're self-accountable. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So it is one of the interesting things that I, it took me a long time to genuinely twig it, is that all human beings are just people. Perfect. Perfect, <laughs> yes. And you meet these people yes. who are very powerful and, uh, and who sometimes think that they are better than the rest of us. They're not. They're just people. Very occasionally you meet people who are extraordinary. You meet people who are intellectually on a completely different plane Absolutely. or artistically so creative yeah. and so bubbling over with ideas and they they kind of dazzle everybody but they're really they're really quite rare beasts the vast majority of people <laughs> are just people spot on spot on rob um and again privileged enough to have some very interesting experiences and dealings with lots of people from across the board mm-hmm. um and i've been privileged enough to i'll say it as my story is all starting to be revealed anyway, mm-hmm. privileged to be the inner circles of, say, one of the richest men in Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, so that taught me a hell of a lot and mm-hmm. that gave me a lot of confidence mm-hmm. as well in dealing with somebody and being able to deal with somebody and stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, and however it turned out, we're good terms, we're still good, but it was a great learning experience for yeah, me. Yeah. The idea that it's almost like, you know, you think you work into the pinnacle and then you realise they're really human as well. Yeah. Yeah, which makes it much easier to deal with. It does, with, yeah. It? it really does. It's, it's an amazing lesson to learn. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, about your business. Yeah. Um, because you you kind of became a fashion designer completely by accident. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. how, did, how did that happen? I, I literally fell into doing a fashion course at art college. And that's as simple as it was. I, I believe in fate. Mm-hmm. I believe in destiny. You know, I'm not this person that you just sit and you just... Think about it, it's just going to come and happen to you. It's got to be action. You've got to go out and do it, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the, the big things about the secret and the manifestation. And I'm a firm believer in sort of things about energy and science. Of course I am. Mm-hmm. But I think it takes a lot more than somebody just being able to sit at home and manifest something. You've got to go out and do something. You've got to try to do something. I mean, it's yeah. my opinion. You've got to aim in a direction. You've got to, haven't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was always creative. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really put a word on it then on very limited budget blue peter was phenomenal for me i was right. just like this blue peter fan just, yeah. what so you'd see them making a thing that's on blue it. peter and then you'd make whatever that's it was it, yeah. so you did like the advent candle with thing the with the coat hangers. Hangers. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> amazing um and primary school and i've got to say i think a lot of where my education where I maybe absorbed a lot more because I had really great teachers mm-hmm. at primary school. And mm-hmm. they were so wonderful. Mrs. Barker, Mrs. Sargent, still remember them. Yeah. Bless them, long gone now. But they were so inclusive. 
And I think also the advantage was that where we were in Loughborough, the Asian community was still a smaller minority. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was a, one or two black families mm-hmm. and that was it. I don't remember a Jewish person in my school or I didn't, or I didn't have any personal contact. But you stood out. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And what was amazing at school was that we celebrated every festival. Mm-hmm. So we learned about the reasoning of each festival. So I do remember learning about Judaism. And I tell you one of the best things, and I'm sure it's probably so on PC now, but going to assemblies in the morning with our hymn books mm-hmm. and singing was probably one of the highlights of our days because yeah. we loved it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. he's got the whole wide world in his hands and stuff. But we felt part of it. Yeah. We felt part of it. And because I think they were so good at explaining, say, Diwali and everybody you're going to play and you do this. And then we had um, some sort of what you call after school teachers or mm-hmm. cultural teachers, we call them now, Mrs. Um, Sisodia. And in fact, we were talking about my dad the other day. But they were so forthcoming. So they used to really get us together and we used to do performances, dance performances or plays and really just encourage us to get to to the front and I think that's where I maybe just didn't care I think because we'd been so used to doing Indian dances in a field in some festival that have you everyone... always been a show off is that pretty what you're much saying? I guess oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a family will agree with you yeah. but that, just, I'm the eldest of 11 mm-hmm. cousins so going back again it meant that summer holidays, all holidays, my mum, my aunts, everyone, because everybody's working, you know, so they're leaving the house at six, half six in the morning, mm-hmm. if not earlier to start, and they're mm-hmm. not back till six in the evening. Mm-hmm. So all day, I was the one looking after them. And as my cousins got older, then we used to look after them. So you've them. always had a kind of responsibi- that's r- responsibility that's as it. well. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's where, you know, so, so those barriers of trying to get stuff happening for my parents as well because they're physically at work. So you know those days where you had to go pay your gas bill mm-hmm. at the gas board, didn't you? And then you had to go to the shop to buy this and to buy that. So I had to be responsible from just an early age to deal with this and then make sure everybody else was doing it. And then we get homework done and this. And, and they'd come to me to get their art homework done, wouldn't they? So, <laughs> <laughs> so you went to art college. Yes. And that was in Medway? No, that was in Loughborough. So you started in Loughborough? I started in Loughborough. Is that where you first found fashion? Yes, that, that, but that was only, just go back a few steps, GCSEs, A-levels, A-level art, graphics, psychology, I knew something, art, but I didn't get the connection of drawing paintings all day long in a career. Mm-hmm. We were so, it was such a traditional old school school. So the jump from GCSE to A-level, GCSE they took everybody on because they had to, mm-hmm. but then you had to apply to art college sorry, A-levels, and they were very, very strict. So my friend circle, which is predominantly Asian and mixed, then all went on to different colleges. So mm-hmm. I was one of the few that stayed on there to do it. So mm-hmm. it was very, you know, um, art history, academic. very, very academic. Mm-hmm. So lots of people from the art course, art A-level, going on to do fine arts or further, you know, that, that real, and I was just mm. like, this is boring. I was mm. doing well, mm. but I was bored. Mm. Just, you wanted to do something creative. That's it. Yeah. But I didn't know what. Yeah. We didn't have the internet then. We didn't know we had limited resources. We were skint as anything, so you couldn't go out and buy those paints. You know, the gouaches at the time were so expensive. So it was just do what you can. We'd end up cutting cardboard boxes, painting stuff, making houses, all sorts of crazy yeah. stuff. So you did then go to art college. Yes. In Loughborough. In Loughborough. And then how, because 
clearly Medway is your place yes. now. You've yes. been here for um, um, 20 odd years? 23, 24 years. Okay. Yeah. So what was the catalyst that led you to leave art college in Loughborough and come down here? Right. So when I was applying to the universities to do my degree, the tutors at art college were like, right, you've got to go into fashion. But I'd been offered a place. Sorry, this is why I fell into fashion. I'd been offered a place after GCS, sorry, A-levels, to go into a graphics for advertising degree based on the premise I went and did a one-year foundation because that's what apparently everybody had to do. Mm -hmm. So being cocky, 18-year-old, thinking I've got my place at university, I'm just going to go and enjoy this course. I'd done the application, you just what I mean? So, and then you sort of started off with, say, eight art disciplines, then you whittled it down and whittled it down, whittled it down. So in the end, it was fashion and graphics. Mm -hmm. The graphics tutor was like, well, there you go, you've got your course. Mm -hmm. And the fashion were like, ah, oh, you've got to do this. But looking back, we were like, molding wire and glue guns and crazy, crazy stuff, you know. But they were like, if you want to make clothes, and if you really want to learn how to do it, come to Medway. And at the time, it was um, <coughs> Kayad. Yes, that's what they told me. So because Sandra Rhodes, obviously, she was kind of a a, a big figurehead for fashion figurehead. in the UK, and she's from this that's part it. of the world. So was that actually was there a direct connection there that people said to you at the time? You know, Sandra Rhodes. Is, I'm going to be honest. I said at the time I had no clue who Sandra Rhodes. Was. <laughs> <laughs> Complete honesty. Yeah, yeah. Because I was so alien to the fashion industry, I didn't understand the industry to what I thought fashion was when I was applying for the mm -hmm. degree. And when I said that at the interview... So let's, let, let's just pick that apart yeah. a little bit. What did you think fashion was at the time then? So, you know, you're looking at the 80s again, right? So you have catwalk shows, mm -hmm. very high glamour, which mm -hmm. is probably still a lot of what my work translates to because subconsciously, you know, what say the Tom Ford era in the 90s of Gucci going back to that sort of very exclusive, that sort of being free to create art, mm -hmm. but on a body. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought it was. And what is it? It's pretty much the same, but there's also that commercial level now that you've got to make clothes that people wear every day or on a basis to make money because yeah. you've got to commercialise it as well, don't you? And I think this is referring back to the state of the industry now is have we gone too commercial or have we got too much of the commercial and not enough of the concept anymore? So I think there's a couple of really interesting strands to dig into there one of which is to do with um people and, and how they perceive fashion because they, the internet has happened yes and it's changed everything yeah so back in the 70s people wore you know paisley shirts and and flares yeah um and in the 60s obviously you had sort of mary quant and dior and and uh, chanel and those kind of things came in and there uh, mini skirts and there was a, def a definite aesthetic then now you can pick from the whole palette of everything. Yeah. There isn't a fashion anymore. No. You can be you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah. And that means an awful lot of people end up in jeans and t-shirts and hoodies. <laughs> Very expensive jeans and hoodies. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's changed so much. And and you know I think it had to change because it it was, you know, when I go back to say exclusive, you know, mm. now you kind of unpack that word and it was exclusive in a sense of excluding mm -hmm. rather than including mm -hmm. yeah, yeah you know and and they became these gatekeepers of such power that would not let anybody else in going back to my time as being a student again and experiencing the industry through fashion weeks and working for designers and doing different things you know at the time 
you didn't really think too much about the the lack of opportunity or, or the barriers that you had to jump. I always took it, sorry, the barriers I had to jump as who I am, not the barriers you would have to jump as a fashion student or a right. fashion graduate. Mm-hmm. You know, it was only later that you got into the industry and you saw how blunt and rude and awful it is, it was, mm-hmm. which had to change. Did you got better? To an extent, I think a lot of it now is what they call greenwashing. A lot mm. of it's hidden, a lot of it's box ticking, a lot of it's, oh, we've filled our quota, let's, you know, do this, do that. And and I think that's not just me saying it, because your end consumer or your, your, your average consumer, like, like all of us, is so more informed. And they're not stupid. No. And the, but fast fashion fast. and the way that, that big companies, so you look at Boohoo, who have just been doing their thing, saying about uh, getting one of the Kardashians on board to say we're going to do stuff sustainably. It's clearly not sustainable because you can't make stuff that can. cheap. But isn't that then coming down to people and, and the dissonance in them? That you, although you know where it's coming from, but then your need or your desire to either A, look good in what they're wearing and get your likes or whatever for that purpose mm-hmm. is in your at that moment you've decided that that's worth more than it is to think about where that's come from mm-hmm. so we we're all human and you kind of think it's not going to happen is it no. and i think that's what we've done for decades i, 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 I mentioned boohoo specifically no, but I, i'm not picking them picking out particularly out, but, but it's it's across the whole fashion industry it, it is it? but boohoo is an interesting concept because that you know they, they've come back with this idea that they're doing this whole sustainable thing and you know you've picked a icon that is very controversial whatever you think you know mm. to get that name out there so i think for them it's an advertising <clears throat> opportunity just to get their name out good mm. or bad because even like what a year ago and all that slavery scandal mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know in leicester and across there was a lot that was kicking off that mm. i was quite aware of because mm. you know obviously growing up in loughborough and leicester i know a lot of those factories and i know a lot of people that work in the industry there and i know how it works and again, it was really interesting is that the, the, the way the press jumped on it, you know, and said it was a, the slave labours, this, that, and the other. But again, like everything else, there's always more complexity in it of who the factory owners are, why they're doing it, and who their staff is. What I mean by that is what ethnicity is their staff? What, and this, the whole thing was about exploitation, wasn't it? So it was a, it's a, and a is that big, exploitation within a community or from uh, being imposed on a community? Both. Right. Both. So again, it's that saviour mentality to say, we're going to go into Leicester and we're going to save them because we're going to uh, tell the press and the press are going to do something. It's all, everyone's going to be known. It's all going to be sorted. But it's not because when you've gone in, kicked up a fuss, two weeks later, everything, the press is gone. No one's interested because it's a new press story. Mm -hmm. But those people's lives, what are they supposed to do? Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing saying this is all this and they're going to ban it, it's this and the other. But, you know, countries far east and India and all those places that have been exploited for fast fashion... They've been exploited because they've got no other choice at that particular time. Mm. So it's so for you as somebody who works in fashion, is that a real conflict in your head? Absolutely. Trying to be yeah. ethical and sustainable. Absolutely. And that's something I've tried for a long, long time. So even five, ten years ago, I've been pushing for Made in England. Made in England, made in England, made in England. People laughed at me. People, well, you'll never get that. Because the t- price was just so expensive. Mm. You know, experiences of making tailored jackets, working with some of the factories, just to get samples done. Three, four times the price if you could get them done in anywhere else, Mm -hmm. you know. And there were options when I was investigating, because we did proper investigations about where and how we could get them done at the best prices. 
you know, the companies that were like, it's the rules, and maybe I shouldn't be saying all this, but you know, it is what it is, mm. that you can get the most, most 90% of it made elsewhere, bring it back to England, sew the buttons on, and then you can say it's made in England. Mm. Mm. That's bullshit. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> but it, who are you kidding? You know, I thought, I'm not doing that, because five years down the line, somebody will find out, and then say, well, you've been doing this. And I'm like, mm. well, no, I genuinely believe made in England. Not just because it's made in England, but the idea that if we can retrain staff and we can build a workforce, and surely we're helping to regenerate our own economy here, mm-hmm. yeah, raising aspiration, ambition, and it's a slow grassroots up. And is it, so part of the reason why we met yes. um, a few weeks ago was, was through a, a thing called Midway Champions. And you've been in the Midway Towns for 23 <laughs> years, as you say. Can't and get rid of it. <laughs> um, and, and it's fair to say that the Midway Towns have, have had a, you know, a, a, a real kicking in terms of when oh. the dockyard closed down. It, it scoured the innards out of the place economically 30-odd years ago in the mid-80s. Um, and, and it's taken a long time to start coming back. But there is a tremendous amount of creativity and really good stuff going on here yeah. that people kind of ignore or forget about or uh, dismiss. Yeah. Um, and you're really keen to you know, change that narrative. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it was born out of uh, exactly what you're saying and the idea of how do you change that perception of what Medway is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's a very complex issue, you know, part of Kent, but not Kent. And then like, it, it, logistically in its own sense, and you've got the five towns that are so disjointed, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously that's a council issue to start with, you know, and I don't know all the ins and outs about that. But all I can speak about is how people feel about place, you know, and pride in place. And, and lots of people, you know, for years it was like, well, I mean, I'm from Rochester, or mm-hmm. I'm from Strood, or I'm from this. Nobody said, you know, we're Medway or Chatham or this and the other, mm-hmm. you know, in Chatham, Give it a really bad rap, mm. bad, you know, I, and I can only speak as I find. And it's been good to me, Medway, really, really good to me. Mm-hmm. And and I think I've met such amazing people and such amazing opportunity. And and I think there's so much of it that isn't celebrated. And like we were talking earlier, but there's so many people that are passionate about changing that. You know, people that got real invested interests, whether they're residents or non-creatives or just businesses, but just to be able to walk down the street and have a look an experience, unexpected art or, or, or an unexpected encounter of some world. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing, it's, it's slow interventions and it comes back to culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've muddled up the word culture a lot. Everyone sort of seems to think culture is this creativity and an, an event and it's not. But the way that I was brought up, the idea to understand that culture is a way of life. It's a way of thinking, it's a way of living and it's a way of being. And it's through those small acts that we do that build the bigger culture. I know that sounds very idealistic and philosophical, but I think those are the sort I think of... that's the reality though, isn't it? And it really the, the, is, you know, yeah. If, if, you, if you understand the fact that there are creative people here doing amazing stuff in Medway Towns, and you let people know that, then yeah. people who live in the Medway Towns can go, oh... Oh, well, there, there are options. There are opportunities. Exactly. We'll go full circle. You were talking about the, the, the um, Rishi Sunak becoming prime minister. Yeah. It's something visible there that somebody as a person of colour can look at and go, well, you can become prime minister. I don't like your politics or I, exactly. I you know, but that's not the point. No. The point is that you know it can happen. That, that's it. And that very important on that note as well to say that People like me, people like my generation, we are different British. We are different British Indians. We are not the same apologetic 
So we need to, or we're supposed to be, Mm -hmm. because we're not. And why should we, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's my own thinking in whatever color you are. Why should you be apologetic? Because you're born here, you're born, wherever you're born, you're right, you're human, you know. As long as you're a decent person, your intentions are good, then why are you apologizing to who? But that point you're saying there is, is that what we're asking for and with the bigger picture of this white privilege and people get so caught up in it, it, it's not special treatment, or at least what my view of it is, it's to be given the same opportunity to be judged or the same opportunity to be selected around mm-hmm. on it's the same criteria. Else. That's it. Yeah. Simple as. So you talked about place yeah. and Medway. You clearly like being uh, here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and specifically, the place we're sat in here is just extraordinary. So for, for people listening, I'm just going to do a little, a little sound picture <laughs> for it. of where we're at. <laughs> so you live in an amazing apartment in a former, I'm going to say, Victorian castle. Well, it's a, it was a military building for... A Napoleonic fort. A Napoleonic fort. Yes. So they are literally gun ports for yes. windows. <laughs> yeah. And you've got the most extraordinary collection of stuff everywhere. As I look around, there's Chinese objects, there's Buddhas, there's peacocks. You're sitting in quite a Baroque <laughs> Rococo throne. Um, we've got a big crown here sat on the table, uh, candlesticks, candelabras. It's I mean, if it, whatever your idea of what a fashion designer should be, I don't <laughs> people aren't let down when they walk into here, are they? No, I guess not. I guess not. But again, you know, this is—it's a partnership, my partner. You know, and it's—we've been together what twenty odd years now, so it's a lifetime of collecting. Mm-hmm. And and the advantage that we do have is that with antiques, you know, you can bring stuff in, take stuff out, change it, and, and it's that contrast that I always like, and, and this that constant tension in my life as well that you, you almost bring two things or three things together, and mm-hmm. that then brings something new, you know, and it's just that almost like I explained to students and stuff, you know, you've got a cauldron and you're throwing all these different things in and then you're mixing it all up and you've got this end result. But mm-hmm. if you change any little uh, ingredient, you're going to get a different result, aren't you? Yeah. But yeah. what you're doing, it's a, it's your soup. What you're putting in is your soup. You know, as, as a creator, what you're ever you're creating for it to have real meaning or passion, in my opinion, is that it has to contain you, your vision, your perception. What are you telling the world about you? Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, or are you questioning? That, for me, you know, comes back to modern art and, and that idea of that, you know, what is it that you're trying to do? I'd much rather people look at my work and go, oh my God, I hate that. You know? You want a strong reaction one way or the other. But you've done something into yeah. you, haven't I? Of course, that reaction, that autonomous object has done something to you. And in terms of sort of the kind of things that you like, because there are certain themes here, and in your clothing, when you look at the Kalika's armour um, sort of collection, yeah. there is a lot of feathers. Yeah. There is kind of peacocks and um, a lot of brocade and gold and see-through things and kind of... Um, <laughs> what's your fashion philosophy? So, again, it's that contrast. So Kalika's armour, so Kalika is the name of one of the original Hindu goddesses. So when I say original, is the origin of time, is the mythology, the story, the, the creation. So it's that divine, almost, energy. And armour, obviously, is armour in terms of protection. So, so bringing the two together, when I was doing my masters, so doing my concepts and theories and write my papers, and the idea of uh, womanhood. Mm-hmm. And the idea that as women, 
there's a need, a physical need to be protected as clothing, because clothing is a second layer of protection. But then the other embellishment side of it was, was then the spiritual side, and hence the brocades and the, all the intricate details. So it was this idea that you still need to be protected, but you're still powerful. And then how do you represent and show those things visually? Mm -hmm. So a lot of those naked dresses that we do are really as a response to power in a sense that the power then becomes to the woman. I feel powerful and confident enough in my own body to wear this and showcase this. You can look, but you can't touch unless I say so. I'm in control. Mm -hmm. You see, and it's those things. That, so you've got those sort of naked and you've got sort of women's tailoring and then you've got really big pieces. And it's just this idea of being protected, but also still being sort of that feminine allure of mystique. And, and then we moved into menswear and it's, yeah. And it's growing, and we'll talk a bit a bit more about that in a moment. But I'm I'm interested when you actually talk to a client because your stuff is not on the high street. Your stuff is bespoke, yeah. and it is for individuals who can afford it. Um, how does that conversation go? It's it's very interesting, and and I think I've got to find a a, a more open way of discussing that online as well. Mm -hmm. And I think you know you, you can write price on application, or you know lots of people don't like to talk about money, you mm -hmm. know. But you know just on that point as well, we can work to lots of budgets. And we have done. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you have to be of a certain thing to come to us because, you know, I've done stuff, I'll say, for nothing for people as well, just because I've wanted to do it. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Well, as an artist, you know, Picasso yeah, exactly. would sign napkins. Yeah. Me <laughs> I mean, but, but in terms of, of you know, when you, as, as a working class lad yeah. from Loughborough, to then be in the room with Britain's richest family and making bespoke items for them that's it is, yeah <laughs> what's going on in your head in that moment <laughs> i'm pinching myself after that i was you know but then you realize that just like everybody else you know and what i really liked about that family as well it was this, this idea that which sometimes went the other way maybe sometimes but it wasn't this ostentatious way of look at me throw my money around this and it was very what's fair is fair what's this is this you know sometimes it's a bit that way but i learned a lot as well and, and i learned how to then, how, how would I say this? Because then we're at events and parties and things and you sort of spoke to people and you networked. And I love people watching. Mm -hmm. you, know, you learn a lot from people mm -hmm. watching as well, don't you? But it's just, it's another world. Mm -hmm. It's another world. And we kept our feet on our ground and we didn't, don't get me wrong, we loved it. And we had some very, very privileged places and people that we met in parties and stuff. But that was a whole other world. Mm -hmm. But we kept our feet on the ground. And we always used to say, you know, Paris, London, New York, Medway. <laughs> you know, one day I'm walking down the Chatham High Street into the Pentagon and the next day I'm in Mayfair in some top, you know, and it's just like, okay, it is what it is. That's great. That's great. It is what it is. You know, and I think that really kept my feet down. So what's next for Jatin Patel? What's next? Very ambitious. Very, very ambitious. So back to the manufacturing. I'm got my fingers in a lot of pies and doing lots of different smaller projects to try and get the right products to be made mm -hmm. here in Medway mm -hmm. to expand on our manufacturing. So we've got the bespoke, so we still do all that celebratory clothes, special stuff, but also a much more uh, accessible line that we want to do on the internet on an e-commerce or have some partners in some stores, but still smaller runs, but sustainable products. We're experimenting with pineapple leather at the moment. We've got some leaves from the Amazon jungle, got bamboo silks and that sort of so it's 
So that's an introductory into the brand as well. And I've then, never heard of pineapple leather. Is that is that made from the leaves or is that it's made a pineapple from... husk? Right. Okay. So it's a husk. Apparently, it's all mashed down, um, and then it's all sort of reconfigurated, and it's really interesting to work with. Some and does it actually look like leather when it's finished, or is it is its own unique thing? I'd say it's its own unique thing. It's got to feel like leather, but obviously it's not leather. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a good thing that it's not so close to it. But it's a little bit more difficult to work mm-hmm. because in terms of fabric, you've got your grains and you've got your warps and your wets and you know mm-hmm. what sort of work. This has nothing. So mm-hmm. in one way, it's a good thing, but in another, it isn't. But we've made some corsets out of it and um, a couple of other pieces. Pineapple work. leather corset. Yeah. The, the world is an extraordinary place, Absolutely. isn't it? <laughs> i tell you what, I'm really trying to get hold of, but these people are like... Oh my God, you can't, they just won't reply back. It's, it's where mycelium. So it's this mushroom leather oh, extract. Right. It looks stunning. So I mean, at the moment, Sally McCartan is doing it. And I think Balenciaga just releasing something. So obviously the big, big boys doing it. But mm-hmm. I think great alternatives. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of really, really great stuff going on. Lots of bio, don't even know the right words, constructed stuff. And I've been to a couple of exhibitions up in London and some really, really great stuff. So there is kind of like good, sustainable, yeah. less impactful yes. ways of producing fashion that you're trying to explore. <laughs> On surface, yes. I'm going to be sceptical mm-hmm. and say for market, probably not as much. There's lots of people. So, so how, why I say that, you know, lots of people screaming about organic cotton. Mm-hmm. You know, but in, in reality, organic cotton uses more water mm-hmm. Than it normal, non-organic, mm-hmm. you know, recycled polyester. Wow, look at us, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. But to recycle that polyester, it uses so much energy to get there. Yeah, it's then really you might complicated. Well just use it? virgin materials, you know, and it's. But this is the pro. It's like there's no, and there shouldn't be, but there's no judge to mm-hmm. say that's right and this is wrong or who's this, you know, and and people. I'm so bombarded with these messages and our attention spans on in, on Instagram. It's why, you know, it just, great, right, so da, 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 da. but you've got the sustainable police out there as mm-hmm. well, which I think mm-hmm. are a bad thing because, back to our early conversation, that I think people that are trying to do something at least are doing something, they're not doing something. Yeah. It's better to make the effort than not, yeah. isn't it? It definitely yeah. is. And I mean, I don't know how long we've got left on this planet with the way the climate change is well, going, but I, I don't know. It's interesting. It's really know. interesting. But we might see some more of your stuff available yes, to the sure. wider public. For sure, for sure, definitely. Um, yeah, so once we get this manufacturing thing, that's the next plan. That's what we're doing so that we become the manufacturers for my own brand. Then we start showing back on, becoming part of London Fashion Week again. And this is all going to be based in Medway? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the whole plan. And uh, yeah, again, we've been banging on about this before COVID. Everyone's like, ah, oh, never happened, never happened. People are like, Okay, it might work now. Let's see what we can do. Let's sit and talk. So being connected over. Has um, it got a name yet? Not yet. Not yet. Not oh, yet. Okay. Not yet. But watch this space. Watch this space. I mean, one of the big things that we've got to face for, as a creative industry here is the what well, Kayad UCA closing. Mm-hmm. That's going to devastate the area. So at the moment, you've got people from all over the world turning up here. You know, you're walking down Chatham, and you've got these really trendy Japanese kids walking around. Yeah. You know, and I think that's wonderful because not only they're exposed to something different, but everybody here is exposed to something different. And I think it's that meeting and that melting pot is what we need for a real multicultural society. Okay, I do, I, I, let's not get too much into the sort of the politics yeah, behind yeah, yeah. what's going on with Kayad, but you would advocate it must be kept if at all possible. It, or something as an alternative has to, because 
not only is it the degrees that are going, mm -hmm. so it's across the whole thing, which, you know, people can travel anywhere they want to do a degree, office finances, you know, everybody in an equitable situation dealt differently. But that, say, between, say, leaving GCSEs and pre pre-degree, not knowing what you're going to do mm -hmm. and not being able to do, say, a two-year foundation equivalent of experimenting and trying those things whilst you're still living at home and all you're still only paying your travel expenses. You know, so, so working class kids get a bloody chance. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a privilege to be able to go. You know, I was lucky. My dad and my parents were like, look, if you're going to go and do it, you probably want to make sure you put 110% into it, whatever you do. Otherwise, mm -hmm. don't bother. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard enough for people to get But it's that gap. In. So That's it's that thing it. when you're sort of like 17, 18, yeah. 19, 20, you don't really know which way's you up don't. on anything. You need to have the there opportunity to experiment. Absolutely. And that's not going to be here. I know there's talk, and I'm speaking to a few people, of the, of offering something, but that's the lack of what we're not going to have. You know, there's talk about retaining talent once here, but if no one's coming in the first place, where are we going to retain it from? So we'll, we'll start to draw things to a, to a close. <laughs> and we could easily talk for hours on everything because you're, you're, you're an engaging and engaged guy. Talk, you know? talk, talk, yeah. What would your, what would your advice be hmm. to 14-year-old Jatin Patel now? Great question. Stay strong. Keep going. It does get better. And you will get there. <laughs> oh, and I, I guess if I equated all that together is enjoy every bit of the journey excellent and as a slight corollary to that what would your advice be to parents of kids who are that sort of age now because sometimes parents you know you you, you get corral down the road of looking at GCSEs, A-levels, university, you have to do these, all these steps. Yeah. And you took a slight, you know, a real step outside ways of doing that yeah. to do things in your own way. I've met any number of people who are really successful in business who left school at 14. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of different ways of living your life and being successful and what success means. Yeah. So what would your advice to parents be of, of kids in the world at the moment? Because there's so much uncertainty. I think it's, it's going to be about mutual trust, isn't it? And I think it's communi communication and understanding the risks. And, and I, I say that in the, in the context of, say, a 14-year-old kid now, the career that they're going to go into probably doesn't even exist at the moment. The way that technology is being immersed into all the creative industries, you know, the artificial intelligence, uh, the, the VR, and the, everything that's been immersed into is going to end up in such different roles so coding and all those things that are going to be so important um and the digital fashion and those it's just almost like believe in them and go with them but i think keep that communication open to then understand the risks and maybe have a bit of a backup plan as a potential because i think these days as well there's that uh, freedom for lots of people to work on freelancers as well so mm -hmm. you do a bit of this or you do a bit of that and mm -hmm. i think it's 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 priorities in what you want out of life do you know, because, yeah, we all want different things and success is different for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think if that makes you happy, then do that. But directly to a 14-year-old lad now or a, or a child, I would be like, go for it, believe in yourself and bloody well do it. <laughs> Excellent. 
Um, Jatin, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> pleasure. Thank you. Rob. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Watch this space is all I can say. <laughs> Again, you know, you've got your ambitions and your hopes and your, and your sort of plans, but the way the universe is delivered, it always sends me so many curveballs and you just say, right, okay, off we go again. Let's get up and get, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, I've been very lucky, very privileged, but you know, a lot of it is putting yourself out there. Yeah. You make your own luck. You do. Yeah. You know, you go out and you talk to people, mm -hmm. you, you smile at people, you, you, you can go and connect. And for some reason, people connect with you. I can't imagine why that would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think there's something about Excellent. just being authentic and just, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. You know, one minute I've got all oh, this, this is fabulous. We went damn hard for it. Yeah. You know, you're not giving on a plate, you know, and then you're in chatting. And I just think the potential here is phenomenal. Jatin Patel there, what a nice guy. Um, high fashion, medway champion. <laughs> I do urge you to go and um, take a look at some of his stuff though. If you just do a search for kalikasarmour.com, K-A-L-I-K-A-S-A-R-M-O-U-R, Kalikas Armour. I mean, it's um, really kind of funky and baroque or see-through lace and peacock feathers, just my kind of stuff, as you might imagine. Uh, you can see El McPherson wearing some of his stuff on a recent Halloween trip to Transylvania. That'll give you a bit of an idea of what he's all about. If you want to get in touch with me, you can always go to my website, wildrovermedia.com, or you can email me directly, robsmith at wildrovermedia.com. In the meantime, until the next time, when we've got all bases covered, look after yourself. All the best. <laughs> <laughs>